0: You guys like songs about overcoming? This week I was, as I was reflecting on this passage, you know, the theme of overcoming comes up a lot. And so naturally I go to I Am the Tiger and The Climb. <laughs> I won't comment on whether or not I actually like the last song, <laughs> which might give you a hint of what I actually think. <laughs> Um, well, the lyrics of the climb are actually really catchy. If you, if, you know, if you guys don't know it, um, you can YouTube it. Um, and, the, and without doubt, the, the, the music is catchy as well. And they, this, this idea of overcoming strikes a chord with everybody. And without doubt, it should strike a chord with the Christian. The Christian life is a life of overcoming. I'm going to explain what that means. But for now, it's good to note that the Christian life is a life of overcoming. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. This was written by a man named John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote Revelation. And so here he's writing this letter entitled first john then there's a second letter and then there's a third letter this is his longest letter and he deals with various topics as he's giving christians certainties wanting them to have assurance that what they believe is actually the right thing and you're going to hear a lot of this certainty this assurance coming through here in chapter 5 verses 1 to 12 i'll go ahead and read it everyone who believes that jesus is the christ has been born of god Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. All right, main theme today, if you guys are taking notes, which I encourage you to take notes. The Christian life is a life of overcoming. But it is an overcoming through Jesus Christ who alone brings salvation. I'll read that again. The Christian life is a life of overcoming, but it is an overcoming through Jesus Christ who alone brings salvation. And that's basically going to be our outline today. We're just going to take apart that sentence. So let's look first at uh, the Christian life is a life of overcoming. Again, this is the Christian's life story, and without doubt, the Christian needs to overcome a lot of different things. Uh, so whether we're thinking about temptations and trials, for example, the Bible calls us uh, to continue in the faith in those things. But what John addresses here in this passage is a very unique overcoming. It's an overcoming of the world. An overcoming of the world. So go ahead and look there First 1 John uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Um, Here he's talking, when he speaks about the world, he's thinking about here a, a world and a heart, really, that's set against Jesus Christ and his ways, his will, his purposes. That's what he's talking about when he's thinking about the world. So you should think, you know, darkness. You should think uh, clouded and shroud of darkness, unable to see the true light. So that's in the Gospel of John. When God sends his only son, he is the light that sheds light into the darkness. That's, that's the world there. So that's what he's talking about when it talks about overcoming the world. It's an attitude of the heart that stands fundamentally opposed to God. So that, if you're here today as a Christian, that's us prior to becoming Christians. That's the world. It's it's characterized by an unbelief. So he's reminding the Christians, you have overcome, really, unbelief. And then if you look there in chapter 2, verse 13, someone else is overcome. It's not spoken of as the world, but it's spoken of as the evil one. That is Satan, the one who represents everything that stands opposed to god his wills and his, his will and his ways so christians in general we overcome unbelief we overcome unbelief and that's what john is talking about here and the reason why he had to write these things to the church was to encourage them again to stay on their course so if you remember as we just continue to walk through first john the gospel of john i mean the, the letter of john here at first john he addresses what true christianity is and its very nature He's wanting them to know, to have with great certainty, without doubt, that this is the real Christianity. And he addresses these things here in the first like, handful of verses. So go ahead and look there at verse 1. And here he's drawing all of these themes together about what true Christianity is. Number one, true Christians believe in the real Jesus. That's in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that this man who died on the cross is the God-man, he says has been born of God. They're genuinely Christians. So he's telling those folks, what had happened is that the, uh, there were some false teachers that had, that had risen amongst their rank. They started teaching false things about Jesus, that Jesus is not fully God and not fully man. Eventually, they probably received some resistance and then they take off and plant a false church. They start a false church here. So he's encouraging them. He's saying, look, you are true children of God if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he moves on to the rest of verse 1. He says, true Christians love other Christians. That's a mark of Christianity, a mark of true Christianity that, that uh, John addresses again and again in, the, in this book. He says, and everyone who loves the Father, the one who gave us birth, loves whomever has been born of him. Of course, you know, if we're in a family, we're gonna, we ought to be loving our siblings, right? And then he moves on, bringing in another string that he's been speaking about regularly. He says, true Christians obey God's commands. So that's in verse 2. Go ahead and look there. By this, we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commands. So there he's bringing all these strings together. He's packaging up true Christianity. And after summarizing, he emphasizes the fact that the Christian's life is a life of overcoming. This is where we get to the real meat of point number one. We can also think about it this way. True Christianity is a victorious life true christianity is a victorious life and look there in verse four he gives the reason there he says everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world that's the reason those who have been born of god they do this they overcome the world so first is being born second is overcoming and uh, it's a term here that's used to describe what christians call being born again being born again, or a fancy theological word is being regenerated. Born again. And God says that his people are born again when God gives them his very spirit. And this is what abides in us, it's what lives in us. And now every Christian here, so if you're today, if you're here today and you are a Christian, every Christian has the Spirit. And you receive this Spirit, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian. So it happens at the same time. So for me, that would be many years ago, over a decade ago. Then I was baptized in the spirit or you could say I was regenerated or you could say I was born again. It's when somebody truly, genuinely repents of their sin. So they turn away from their sin and then they believe. Jesus spoke about this in John 3. Unless one is born of the water and the spirit. Born of water, there he's thinking about cleansing. He's not thinking about baptism, he's thinking about cleansings. He, he draws that from the Old Testament. The water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then even if we reach further back, you know we can reach all the way back hundreds of years before Jesus came to the Old Testament. And we come to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. If you're taking notes, you can write that down and look it up later on. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So so that's another way of speaking about what God does to the the person who repents and believes. He takes out their heart of stone, their heart of stone that's dead to God, and he gives them a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit inside of us, and then it says, and cause you, he causes us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. See, that's causal there. He puts a spirit in us and it causes us to do something. And that is regeneration. is being born again. So then the things that we once loved, you know, we begin, you know, pre-Christ, we begin looking at those things and we say, oh, you know, I just don't really like those things anymore. And so fundamentally we begin to change and the Spirit causes us to, to love and behold God for who He is and His ways. And then we walk in His rules. So here it says that he causes people to overcome the evil one. They are overcoming unbelief. Because the reason is, God has put his spirit in us. So imagine your life, or just think back to your life before God found you. Right? Your life was set on certain tracks, like a train. Your life was set on certain tracks before God found you. For example, you think about the way that you sought entertainment or, you know, to blow off steam or something like that. You go to drugs to blow off steam you go to drunkenness to blow off steam you go to video games for hours on end while you reject and neglect your family maybe binge shopping i know a number of people who have maxed their credit cards by the time they're 18 because that's the way that they blow off steam um you know, Maybe they turn to again and again and again uh, some sort of addiction or some sort of compulsion. Even like golf, for example, which seems so seemingly benign. You know, It doesn't really harm anybody. But you can imagine the person who goes to play golf every day for four hours and neglects their family. That actually has significant consequences. So, so God, God finds us. He gives us a spirit. We're able to look back at those things and think, you know what? I actually don't really like doing those things anymore we begin to think differently about certain things and god gives us tracks that are of godliness so once we are on tracks of worldliness he gives us tracks that are of godliness and that lead to godliness so and he sets us on those very tracks and he says you know basically you know run and soon enough he teaches you more and more about who he is and what he desires And the way that you view life looks very, very different. Where once you sought satisfaction in, let's say, getting high, you no longer need those things for your world to be okay. Where once you played video games for hours and hours on end, to the detriment of your family, you begin saying, oh, you know what, these video games, while they might be okay and fun, and maybe I can play them with my wife and my children, I should never be neglecting my family because of my own selfish desire to, to do these things. Um... So, so things of your old life become less and less attractive. Where you drank to excess. Maybe now you desire self-control because you love God. And uh, for new believers, if you guys can think back, if you were converted later on in your life, you would probably remember a time when you began learning what, who God is and what his desires are. And you begin very at the very basics you know, so what does it mean for, for me to use my body in a relationship? Like, I'm not allowed... What does God want me to do in terms of sex? Well, the Bible says we go to the Word and we're able to see, wow, God wants us to have sex, actually. But He wants us to have it and enjoy that in a marriage relationship. So it's not like God is approved. He says, oh, look, we want you to enjoy these things. Even something like, for example, um, I love cars. And uh, unfortunately, when when I started following God... Um, a lot more seriously I came to really understand what it meant for me to give my life to God I had uh, been hanging around with friends and we had done a number of sinful things in our cars um, uh, how do I explain without explaining too much um, th- anyways I had, I had a bad understanding of what it meant to, to fix up my car with my friends and I automatically thought oh all of that is bad and none of it is good and I had that mentality for a while. And then I finally went over to uh, one of my pastor friends and he knew that I was into that. And I made some passing comments and he, knew, he picked up on this, that I had this poor understanding. And he goes, you know what, Jeremy, a beautifully made car or an engine is evidence of God's grace. And then I thought, praise God. I can go and appreciate these, these beautiful things, but not idolize them and appreciate them, recognize that, wow, God is gifted man with such an ability to make this. Beautiful thing, this, you know, 16-cylinder, 1,000-horsepower Bugatti. I can just, I can praise God for that. Um, what's my point here? <laughs> so we begin looking at our own life with different lenses. And we begin submitting everything underneath the lordship of God. It doesn't mean that everything, every one of those things is bad, like sex, for example. But it's, we just need to understand them in light of what God intends for them, for us to enjoy them as. So we are born again. And you know what's amazing here? It's because of the Christian's love for God that makes getting on those tracks not burdensome. Because of the love for God. That's what our text says here. Look there in verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Now to some of us, we don't understand what this means. Not burdensome. You know, you approach Christianity and you think... You know, Christians, they're just all about doing good. Like, why would I want to put this burden on my shoulders? That's the very definition of of a burden. And so I therefore walk around with all these commands, these lists of do's and don'ts. But it's important there to note there the connection between love and obedience. Love and obedience. So you here today, you might think that these commands uh, or these regulations... Uh, are in fact bad these restrictions they are in fact burdensome you think and maybe it's because of various reasons so I, i often think that a lot of people think that they are burdensome because we don't understand authority from god's point of view we don't understand authority from god's point of view and so we say any command or restriction that comes from something or someone above me is oppressive and should be questioned that's the very nature that's kind of what undergirds punk rock and undergirds gangster rap and a lot of rap in general it's that mentality there anything that comes from above ought to be questioned and they are in fact burdensome they are oppressive but let me ask you what if just what if god is who he says he is that he is in fact perfect always loving kind gracious and merciful if he is our authority right if he is who he says he is and he really is our authority then why would we need to question his authority there why would there be a need to doubt in fact if he is who he says he is then all of that suspicion then can be removed away And if he is who he says he is, then his commands, because they come from him, are also lovely. So it doesn't matter what you think about the president now, whether you respect him or not, whether or not you uh, don't respect him and his policies. Um, If you enjoy the president, his person, what he does, who he stands for, you probably are going to appreciate his policies because they are a representation of him. And so it is with God. He is who he says he is, and so his policies, or very much his law, as represented here, his law of grace, we, we begin to realize that they also are lovely. That's why they are not burdensome. Another thing that I run into, maybe we find rules burdensome because we simply don't understand love. We simply don't understand love, and so we end up saying, to love is to accept me for who I am if you loved me then you wouldn't give me commands you'd let me do whatever i want so in that case the rules are burdensome because they get in the way of what i want to do and we have this understanding twisted understanding that love means i don't regulate at all no one ought to regulate at all Um, but i don't think this makes sense at all and so we get this in real life if we imagine if we had a, a, a child a teenager who's still living underneath our authority and we gave him an allowance. Let's say we gave him, for some strange reason, you decided to give him twenty dollars a day. Uh, my parents gave me five dollars a day, and that was huge. I could buy like you know five taco snacks um, and eat them all, um, or I could save up some money and go buy a nice jacket that I had been eyeing. We uh, don't tell my dad that that's what I did. Um, so, that, so, so imagine having a child, and you give them twenty dollars a day. And then you go and find out that your child has actually been using that money to go buy alcohol and he gets drunk every single day. Is your love for your child going to change even in the ways that you provide him money? Or would you as a parent just say, here's another $20, I know exactly what you're doing, $20, day after day after day after day. No, you wouldn't say that. How would we judge that parent? We would say that that parent... Uh, unfortunately, is probably a bit delinquent. And we would encourage that parent to say, look, you know, it's good that you want to give your, your child food. So how about we change the ways instead, instead of giving cash, maybe you give in a different way uh, where you know that he's going to be buying food and you can help him with his addiction. The way that uh, an authority loves a child who's in trouble, it ought to change from one thing to another thing based on how, that person, how we can actually help that person. So there, it's a poor understanding of love that says love never regulates. I use this silly example often, but I think it gets the point across. Because I love my children, I tell them not to play with knives. Because I love my children, I tell one not to push the other one inside the dryer and turn it on. So love means, at times, giving regulations, and there's nothing wrong with that. We would all say that's a very good thing. That's why his commands are not burdensome because they are God's commands, always good, always perfect, always righteous and they come from Him who truly and genuinely loves us. Now I should say that just because his commands aren't burdensome doesn't mean that we as Christians don't struggle. So if you were to ask me, okay there are certain commands, Howard, how is it going when it comes to following them? I would tell you I genuinely struggle. but I'm convinced that in the midst of those struggles the, the The issue is, not God or his commands, the issue is my heart. The issue is a lack of belief. So, for example, if I'm forced to get hammered because I'm struggling to run away from these problems, and I have like, you know, 12 beers right there, and I got God, someone might be genuinely tempted to to get drunk and drown their problems here. But that's because I lack the faith to say and grasp hold onto the facts of Jesus Christ that he is all-satisfying. And so therefore, I can look even in the midst of the the struggle and say, I want to believe in these things. Help me, God, to believe in you. And so not find your rules to be burdensome. The problem is ultimately with our hearts. And it comes down to a uh, lack of faith. But what's awesome is that in the midst of those struggles, we can go back to God, recognizing him for who he is. Always loving, always good, always righteous. And his commands are that way too. And then we go to the word. What does God say about getting drunk? What does God say about serial adultery or whatever it is? Having sex outside of marriage and so on and so on. So God causes us to be born again. He puts us on tracks that are of God and that lead to godliness. And in so doing, we've overcome the world. Now, if we continue on in the text here. The rest of the verse unpacks what it is to overcome. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So clearly to believe is to have the victory. And faith plays a huge part in Christianity. If you're exploring Christianity, it's important to know this. Faith plays a huge part in Christianity. But in order for you to live a successful Christian life, you have to understand what faith is. In order for you to live a successful Christian life, you have to understand what faith is, according to Scripture, and how that helps us overcome the world. Um, You know, I I think undergirding a song like The Climb is not necessarily Christian faith. I think we all have to acknowledge that. At the end, the girl, the girl singing there, uh, she, she champions faith. you got to keep the faith. you got to keep the faith. But faith is never really defined, right? So as a Christian, you could import your, all your ideas about Christianity and faith and Jesus into what she's singing. But she herself doesn't sing these things. So there, I think we're left concluding that what she's saying is, look, you overcome the world, the mountains that face you. It's all about the climb. You overcome that by having faith in faith. You have faith in faith, or your ability to have faith, and that ends up leaving us saying, "If I just believe enough, if I just have enough faith, then I get the victory over whatever I want, over this mountain and whatever mountain. I just got to have the faith. You can, with the, this faith, you can overcome the impossible." Now, some Christians they grab this and they call it a "name it and claim it" gospel. And if we don't get something like a job or money or out of a difficult situation, then we simply just don't have enough faith. With enough faith, they say, you have the victory, right? I mean, but if we just embrace that type of thinking and we compare it to the Bible, it just logically doesn't make sense. I mean, if we lined up all the saints through Christian history, who would we then have to knock off as people who did not have enough faith? You know, there goes Jesus. If he just had enough faith in the Garden of Gethsemane, then he wouldn't have suffered. If he just had enough faith on the cross, then he wouldn't have died. And he would have received health and wealth. But clearly here, Jesus moves towards his death. And that was God's intention. Suffering was God's intention, even though Christ had all faith. And then what what, what about the apostles? You know, we just knock off the Apostle Paul, knock off all the rest of them because they're absolutely persecuted for their faith i mean paul eventually he was beheaded for the gospel i mean how's that for turning the name it and claim it gospel on its head he knew that believing and preaching the truths of jesus would get him killed as it says in book of acts and yet he continued to do it he looks straight in the fact that he will be bound and turned over to the romans and he says i must do these things. I'm ready to do these things to die for the sake of Jesus. And he went on and did that. And then and then, what does this name it and claim it gospel do for the rest of Christian history? From the time of the apostles on, uh, I find it to be quite insulting to the martyrs of the faith who have died throughout centuries giving their lives to the gospel. So you guys ever hear this book called uh, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs? It's all about how people have died throughout history for the christian faith and 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 fox writes this book to christians to encourage us in the faith and he does that yes by holding out christians who have kept the faith Um, but it's interesting it's not as they escaped poverty and death but as they endured poverty and death that's why it's so encouraging it's not because they escaped poverty and death by their faith but as, as they kept the faith as they endured poverty and death. I mean, the, the, the naming claimant gospel and those who teach it, they might as well rename Fox's Book of Martyrs something like, frankly speaking, Fox's Book of the Less Spiritually Mature who failed to understand Christianity and so they died. But that's not the gospel here. How then do Christians overcome it's because God gives us the new birth. God grants us the very faith we have. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. That faith itself is a gift of God. It's not having faith in faith or faith in ourselves. It's by having faith in Christ. He's the object of faith. And so as a Christian, you could very much go to, to some sort of teaching that says, look, life is all about overcoming. We say, yes, it is. But not because it stems within ourselves. We are actually the very problem. Sin stems from us. And so the solution is not from us. What good would it do to really trust in ourselves if we are the very problem that God takes care of? In the beginning, God created man to be in a relationship with him and to have faith and to believe in him, to be in a perfect relationship with him. The problem is that man turns from God and really believes in themselves and say, look, I can do this on my own. I don't need God. And so in so doing, they earn for themselves judgment, ultimately judgment in hell. And God says that that is treason for those who turn away from the king. It really is applauding the rebellion of the great and only king. And so God in his grace saves us by giving us a new spirit, changing our hearts and causing us to believe And causing us to walk in his ways. That's why we overcome. Not faith in faith or faith in ourselves. But faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the verse says. This brings us to the second point here. The Christian life is a life of overcoming. And overcoming through Christ. It's an overcoming through Christ. Look there in verse 5 and you see why context is so important here. He says, who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, overcoming is linked with belief and belief in certain statements. Belief in certain truths. Which is exactly what, what uh, Jeremy was teaching us in the equipped class. He was teaching us about faith. Faith is rooted ultimately in facts, in statements, in realities. The fact that Jesus Christ came from God as fully God and full, fully man. To die on the cross for sins and that's exactly why uh john has to point them back to right belief It's because those false teachers were teaching false things about jesus and so where those false teachers were chipping away at the foundation of the church there john seeks a, to to establish the foundation to re-establish and to strengthen it jesus is the christ but it's not just statements It's not just data. This is statements and truths about a real person. This is a real person in history who was born, who had died, and then who had rose again. The Christian overcomes not only because God gives him new birth, but because Jesus himself overcomes. Look there in verses 6 to 10. This is John's point here. This is he who came By water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but the water and the blood. So it's right there. If you're you're wanting to overcome for the Christians there, whose whose community was being shattered and separated here, he says, look, you overcome by continuing to believe as you already have believed. And you look to Jesus. He is the one who came. He is the one who came. This is he who came. They're They're supposed to have certainty there. Now, when he says water and the blood, that's an interesting phrase. Uh, There's different interpretations that people have put forward. Some people believe that water and the blood means that when the centurion pierced his side when he was on the cross, uh, that the fluid leaked from him, water and the blood. Other people say that water here stands for cleansing, as it does in that Ezekiel passage that I read. And then blood stands for atonement, so God paying the sacrifice for our sins. Uh, But I think context here, in terms of the history, is the most helpful thing in terms of how we understand this water and the blood. To repeat what I've mentioned before, John here, he wrote against false teachers that believed that uh, the spiritual things were good and the human stuff of the earth was bad. So the flesh was bad. So when these false teachers came to this doctrine of the incarnation, they said, "Okay, God is good, spiritual being, but he's going to take on flesh, which is bad? No, that doesn't really work. That doesn't fit my understanding of things. So I'm going to repackage everything. And then, so they say that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit Christ, descended on man, the man Jesus, at his baptism. That's when the Spirit Christ descended on the man Jesus. So they're two very different people. And then the Spirit left the man Jesus at his crucifixion. So the spirit of Christ comes down on the man Jesus, and the spirit rises from the man Jesus over here at his crucifixion. And I think that's what John is talking about. He's saying, look, Jesus really came. Here we have his baptism. He really came. It's legitimate. And then here we have his uh, crucifixion, his sacrifice of atonement. So he's sort of giving the book ends of Jesus's ministry. This is a legit, fully God and fully man. Savior, that is Jesus Christ the false teachers they were trying to strip the gospel of the good news and they were doing that by ridding the humanity from jesus christ well in what sense do we overcome if you get rid of the incarnation what sense do we overcome if we get rid of the incarnation jesus clearly enters into the world and takes on flesh So if we remove the manhood from Jesus and the gospel, then the gospel ceases to be the gospel. So as I was putting uh, Ellie to bed this week, she said, Dad, why did Jesus have to become a man? Great question. So I repeated to her what we mentioned a few weeks ago, that only man could die for the sins of men. Because that's God's justice. But then at the same time, you look at who can actually save, because no sinful man can save. That's why Jesus had to be fully man and fully God, because only God could die for the sins of man and atone for their sins. So you remove the humanity of Jesus, and you're left with something so wretchedly far or mutilated, a mutilated gospel. Hebrews 2 speaks of how Jesus helps God's people in a number of ways. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And this speaks about how Jesus here helps God's people. And because he is this great helper of God's people, that the children of Abraham we are called, he says according to God's plan, this is what he's supposed to be. He's a helper of God's people. It says, therefore, he had to, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to. That's a must in God's eternal plan. Why is that? Because it says, so that... He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For those of you who don't know, a priest in the Old Testament, he was supposed to bring the sacrifice of atonement before God on behalf of the people. He was charged by God on behalf of the people to make the sacrifice, to bring the blood sacrifice before God and and what made him effective high priest was because he understood and sympathized with men he was like them and so he went before god as one just like them and so here it speaks about how jesus had to be made like his brothers that is you and i in order that he might sympathize with us identify with us of course not not in knowing our sin because he's a sinner but because he understands our plight as man. He understands our plight as man. He takes on, as Romans says, the very likeness of sinful flesh. That's how far he would stoop down to identify with people. And then he goes before God on the cross, carrying all of his people in his train, pleading their case before the Father, just like them. Fully man, but what is obviously so different, he is, in fact, fully God. That's the very reason why God sent His Son to die. It's to die on the cross for sin. So where we deserve to die and bear all of that wrath, He takes it upon Himself so that He therefore can go before the throne on behalf of everyone who ever would believe in Him so that the Father would give and grant forgiveness to those who actually turn from their sins and believe on Him. And so now Christ stands as our representative head, dying where we should have, receiving the punishment where we should have, and he lives to new life. And he's a righteous man, so that everyone who would believe on him would have and possess that righteousness. So that's the confidence that they were supposed to have. In that particular Jesus, who lived and died on the cross and then rose from the grave. That's why it says, this is he who came. This is is legit here. A legit savior fully god fully man that they ought to continue believing in this is he who overcame and god gives us plentiful witnesses he gives us plentiful witnesses and and that's where uh verses seven eight and nine come into play here so again he's wanting to establish assurance he's wanting to give them confidence and he says look There are plentiful witnesses. You ought to believe them. Verse 7, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So in the Old Testament, a dispute was, uh, was confirmed or settled on evidence of two or three witnesses. And so John is reaching back and he says, look, you want to settle this as dispute amongst men? We have two or three witnesses. Here they are. We have Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There God opens up the heavens and he declares these things that John himself was a witness to. That's the first witness. The second witness at his crucifixion, the Roman soldier says, surely this man was the son of God. Second witness. And then we got the third witness, the spirit of Jesus himself who in the Gospel of John convicts men of their sins and turns them towards God. And they all testify, one, two, three, that Jesus is the Christ. But what's amazing for us today is we have all of this. This is our faithful witness. And God continues to testify. The question is, especially if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, what do you do with these witnesses god's witness through the scripture this is as john says god's witness look there in verse 9 he says that we receive the testimony of men which we do it all the time you know we say such and such said we this happened uh we say such and such said we're gonna go have lunch at this place so we accept the testimony of men and he says if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning himself. So here we see the whole trinity at work in this testifying, this great testament to the salvation that we have in Christ. Listen to this verse, John 8, 13. I am the one who bears witness about myself. That's Jesus saying, I bear witness about myself. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. God's very witness there that ought to be believed. And then John 15, 26, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. This is God's testimony here. And as I said, as I mentioned earlier, this testimony has not stopped because we have scripture. So the question for you today, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to believe, what are you doing with God's? witnesses and his testimonies for those of us who are christians we are reminded about what we did with his testimony just think back to what we were before christ found us did we not hear all of these testimonies and then reject them time and time and time again and yet god has been so patient with us and he's been so patient with you even now so the way i think about it is you know i remember going on a business trip one time and then returning home And my family had put this welcome home sign, you know, we missed you, we love you sign, you know, right in the foyer of our apartment. So I walk in, and here's this magnificent sign. You know, it's huge, and you've got the little kids, you know, decorating it and painting it. That's their testimony of love to me. And I recognize it, I appreciate it, I love them for making it. And I acknowledge their love for me, and I receive their love for me, and then I give it back, um... But this is what we did as we were non-Christians. God puts the testimony of his son right in front of us. And we walk into the foyer of the world every single day. And we see it and we don't even, we ignore it. It goes unrecognized, uncared for, unnoticed. What would you guys think of me if I did that every single day? I walk in, there's this beautiful sign. I don't even recognize it. Or if I do recognize it, I don't acknowledge it. And day after day after day, there stands this sign, a testament to my family's love towards me. And I'm saying, I'm not going to acknowledge it. And my family, day after day after day, they, they tell me about their love for me. And not only that, they plaster other signs up. Everywhere in the foyer. We love you. We miss you while you were gone. We appreciate stability that we have. We love how you tickle us, etc., you know, etc. Et so the whole foyer is just covered. In these testaments of God's love. Or sorry, my family's love towards me. Well, before God found us, that's what we were doing. Day after day after day. Rejecting his testament. Rejecting his witnesses. And he just continued to put them up. One after the other. After the other. Even though we were hard hearted. He says, God loves you. He loves the world and set his son to die. Christ died so that we might be forgiven. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the wrath bearer that saves you from your sin. And he even gives us testimonies, witnesses of his love to us by our friends' lives, doesn't he? A friend's life changed, and then they say, I changed your friend's life. You want to know why your friend is so loving? It's because he knows me and I love him. And there are people in here who, who are inquisitive about Christianity because they watch and they observe how God changes people's lives. Every Sunday, as you come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get yet another witness that Jesus is the Son of God. So friends, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer in Christ, know that God has given you his testimony so that you would believe. Why would you not believe? Why would you go on letting these signs go unrecognized, uncared for? No, brothers and sisters, those of us who are Christians, it is God alone who gives us the birth so that we might understand these signs. And for the non-Christian, he calls you to repent and believe because they are plastered everywhere. Turn from your sin your rejection of him, the great and loving creator who's made his love known plentifully everywhere and be saved. There's forgiveness in him and there's security in him, in him. And if you want to know more about that, feel free to talk to me at the end of the service. I'd be happy to talk to you about the gospel. Uh, it's a gospel that ought to be believed in because it comes from God who is in fact the king. The last point. The Christian life is a life of overcoming through Christ because Christ alone bring salvation that's in verses 11 to 12 go ahead and look there this is the testimony that god gave us eternal life and this life is in his son whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of god does not have life so here it's to have the son is to have life presently and it is in fact an eternal life you know I, know, I know sometimes there are Christians who might get confused about why we call out um, certain teachings like uh, the name it and claim it gospel, the prosperity gospel. It is because here, well, number one, it's biblical. So here John is calling out false teachers. And so as a pastor, I ought to as well. But we got to know that, that this isn't just being mean or, or like, you know, we're fighting over turf here. Here, the reason why it's so important is because To have the Son, to have the gospel, is to have eternal life. Which means that if you don't get the gospel, you don't have eternal life. That's a conclusion here that's so evident. This is why we preach the good news of Jesus every single week. Because ultimately salvation is at stake here. These are not mere opinions, but truth that brings life and salvation. Eternal life. That's why John is so determined to write both his gospel and his letter... John 20 verse 31 reads I write these things to you So that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ That's his grand purpose He writes his gospel So that you may believe That Jesus is the Christ The Son of God And that by believing You may have life in his name And then in 1 John 5 13 Go ahead and turn there He says I write these things to you Who believe in the name of the Son of God So they already believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. Meaning that you, if you follow these false doctrines that strip the power of Jesus from the gospel, strip the saving truths from the gospel, you don't have eternal life. That's what's at stake here. The Christian life is a life of overcoming, not because we have faith in faith or faith in ourselves, but because we have faith in Jesus, because He alone brings salvation. And so we say with many christians in the past that salvation is by grace through faith in christ alone now we get a wonderful opportunity now to uh think about christ overcoming as he died on the cross and then rose again on the third day and in so doing those who believe are brought together we are united with jesus in his death so we die to sin in our old life and we go into the grave. That's pictured as he died and went to the grave. So we go under the water. And then just as Jesus was raised to new life. So he brings up everyone who believes in him. They are raised to new life as well. And we get to see this as people speak about how they. Uh, about how God found them. And then as we watch these baptisms. Um, so I'll pray. And those of us who are going to be baptized. Uh, we can go ahead and get changed. And then the music team will lead us in a song. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, how amazing is it that there is eternal life in Your name. Lord, we pray that we would not even be... We wouldn't think twice, or even when we are tempted to think about overcoming in our own power, that we would be driven back to Your name. And how it is Your name that everyone who repents and believes can have salvation. Lord, we boast in Your great work in the cross. May we know that there is nothing that can add to our salvation. Even the baptisms that we see now, not even that can add to our salvation. Because to, do, to think that it would even do so is to strip the power of the gospel from the gospel. So Lord Jesus, we boast in the cross and we boast in the resurrection and we praise you. Lord, we pray that we would continue believing in truths, but truths that are rooted in historical realities. Father, so we ask that you would help us as a church to remain faithful and to overcome knowing that you have given us the new birth and knowing that your truth alone is the truth that saves. In your name we pray. Amen.